Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come to this time of opening Your Word, we just ask for Your Spirit to anoint this place. Lord, I ask that every distraction would leave. That You would just give us the touch of Your power to tune in to Your Word, to focus to listen with our hearts and minds. Lord, we need You. God, I need You. There are people in here that they leave as they came in, God. They die. They'll be forever lost. A place called hell. Lord, would You through this preacher today help lost men and women catch the vision of You who died to save them. Lord, for Christians who have gotten into the rut of routine and routine and routine to where it's become something that they simply do. God, would you restart the fire? Would you help us not to view you as Santa Claus or the God who's always looking out to punish us, but as the loving, powerful, heavenly Father whose wrath against sin was so much that he was willing to execute his own son. When the invitation is given, you'll move and people will step out. People will be saved. People will be born again. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bibles and also flip over to Hebrews chapter 4 beginning in verse 11. We're going to have one finger in Ephesians chapter 6 and the other if you have one of these Bible dividers. We're going to be over in Hebrews chapter 4 just by way of context so that we don't misunderstand the Bible, the context of Ephesians chapter 6 of the message today, the warrior's weapon, the Word of God, is that the Bible contains, the Bible is the message of God to defeat the lies of Satan. So it's an outward type of against Satan, an anti-devil context. Then over in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, the context there is what the Bible does to us. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to primarily take a look at what the Bible does to us. When we hear God's Word and it begins to soak in and so change our lives so that we are able to combat and defeat the enemy through the power of the Word of God. And the main idea there in your bulletin, your worship guide, is simply this. If you have one, let's read this together. The main idea is that the Word of God lets you see yourself as God sees you. The Word of God, the Bible, the testimony of Scripture, lets you see yourself as God actually sees you. You know, we've probably all known those people who think that they're really good at a sport. And they're really not. 
Girls, you may have dated a guy who thinks he's the man. And he's a total loser. You may have had the boss who think that he knows everything. But he really knows nothing. Especially about people skills. Can I get an amen? We were able to go to Winter Jam on Friday night. And I don't know why he was there or how he got in, but ladies, Jason Castro was there. Are there any ladies in the house? All right. Jason Castro, the guy, you know, his hair kind of, it's like, your hair, my mom's mop. Somewhere over the rainbow with his ukulele and you girls are, you know, just, woo! And he was there, he was signing autographs and there was like this line, there was probably 95% chicks in the line. The other 5% of dudes, I was like, bro, you know, I didn't know what to say, but I was kind of like, you may be tripping a little bit. I'm not, how should I handle this? And so there was this girl, I passed right by Jason Castro and, and usually, guys, the thought of us is when we, we meet, especially a guy singer, our, our, our usual, like the way we size up guys is, is if we can beat them up, right? And, and my summary is kind of a little guy's like, bro, I could beat you up with my left toe, you know? And, and so there's this, this girl, and she had just met Jason Castro, and she was there in front of the concession stands, and she was saying that she was like, in her own world, she was saying, I just met him. I just met him. I just met him. And she was like freaking out because she had just met Jason Castro. Now, I know for some of our ladies that may have been around a little bit longer, a better comparison would be Elvis. All right, I'm getting some head nods, not too many amens because you're like, I'm in church. But, you know, what is it about meeting someone that we really think is awesome? I actually met Chuck. This is a true story. Uh, let's see, it was 2008 in August. I met Chuck Norris. No joke. Greenville, South Carolina, Furman University. He was there to speak on campus. And we took our, our students there. And, and afterwards, you had a chance to meet Chuck Norris, but you had to buy his book first. And I was like, $25 is nothing to meet um, Chuck Norris. And I was able to shake his right hand. True story. And then I went to open up the van door. I totally ripped the van door off. I was like, how did that happen? You know, my goodness. Man, you know, I mean, Chuck Norris. It was just awesome, right? The part about the door was a joke for some of y'all, just to make sure. But it was an amazing thing to meet someone that you just think is awesome. And let me just put this forward this morning. Jesus Christ is awesome. Absolutely and totally above Jason Castro, above any movie figure, above any soldier, any general, any model, or any supermodel. Jesus Christ is the awesomest person in history. And what we're going to do today is look at the value of the Word of God. The Word of God is awesome. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, here's what the Bible is described as. It says, and take the helmet of salvation and, here it is, the what of the Spirit? The sword. Everybody say on three. One, two, three. Sword. The sword of the Spirit, notice, which is the Word of God. And then let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Beginning there in verse number 12. Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the what? The Word of God is living. Now this word in the Greek New Testament is zoe. 
If you know a girl and her name is Zoe, that is literally the word in the New Testament that distinguishes bios, biology, physical life, from the Zoe, the life that God puts in us when we get saved, when we get born again. And some of you, I hope all of you this morning have bios. Physical life. I hope we don't have any fatalities here this morning. We're going to be using swords and whatnot. But here's the difference. Not all of you have Zoe. Not all of you have the life of God having been born again, having been changed. And today, God wants to save you. Yes. You. Today. Now, notice. It is living, and what's the next word? It is also active. And here's the description. Sharper, I love this, than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And here's the scary verse that most of us like to pass over. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Why does the Bible use a sword? Kind of a violent metaphor, isn't it? Don't you think? What do you use swords for? For killing. Let me just make a disclaimer here. The Bible is not saying that we actually take the sword physically and we go find people who don't follow Christ and we tell them at the point of a sword, if you follow Christ, we won't kill you. But if you refuse to follow Christ, we will kill you. The Bible is not advocating crusades. The crusaders, please hear me, were not followers of Jesus. Jesus told Pilate. He, Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. They would have been fighting. But since Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that will one day come, the Bible's not saying that we're supposed to take up literal armor or guns or grenades and go and in the name of God try to press Christianity upon other people. That's why it's probably best not even to sing the song Onward Christian Soldiers because if you have a lost person who comes in here, you know what they think of? Crusades. In the Crusades, you had European invaders, the Red Cross on their breastplate and the same on their shield to Muslims and Jews and they slaughtered whole towns in the name of Jesus who said to love your enemies. So what we're looking at today is not a physical thing, but rather a spiritual thing. So the question is, why would Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, use a sword as a metaphor? Well, because the sword was the best killing weapon of the day. This sword right here is not a double-bladed sword. If we were in combat and you have this sword, it's very heavy. You could probably, like in the movie 300, hack someone's leg off. You could behead someone with this. But as far as cutting both ways, this is not what the Bible uses to represent the Word of God. And it, notice it also does not represent the Word of God as a spear. 
Because with a spear, if you get knocked down, you cannot defend yourself. Except in a primarily defensive position. Notice it does not say that the Word of God is an axe. Because if you're back against a wall, you can't pull back to get momentum to throw or to swing your axe. It doesn't say a mace. Because in close quarters, you don't want to have a mace. True, you have to get wide movement to apply your weapon. Why would the Bible say a double-bladed sword? It's a double-bladed sword because this is the ancient equivalent. This is going to get kind of gory here. It's the ancient equivalent of a modern hollow point. The Roman double-bladed sword was weighted in such a way to where it wasn't heavy and cumbersome like an axe to where if you swung, all of your weight would be going down. It was very quick. And the Romans would fight with large rectangular shields and most of the fighting was done over the top, around the side, or underneath. And the great historian William Gibbon said that the Romans found that the swath means if you swing your sword, wounds, but the thrust kills. It's pretty violent, isn't it? You know what the application is here? That the Word of God is the most effective tool in the world to kill our sin. The Word of God pierces in such a way that when we hear the Word of God preached or taught, even when we open up the pages of the Bible and read it, it's like God pointing His finger and saying, you need to change here, you need to change now. The Word of God has a way of blasting through all of our excuses, doesn't it? The Word of God is a weapon that is deadly against our sin. And there in your outline, I'm going to give you several facets of the Word of God. Here's the reason why the Bible is so powerful. Number one, the Bible is not dead literature, but it's a living reality. The Word of God is living. You can look in the Bible and you can find examples about friends. What kind of friends to have? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, (laughs) He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. That means, students, if you hang around the people who don't give a rip about the Lord, when the cops show up, you're going to jail too. Modern equivalent. There's things in the Bible about marriage. About how to have a good marriage. And here's the question for the married people. Um, is your marriage based upon something else or is it based upon the Word of God? It's awesome. We studied about how the man is supposed to... Ladies, this is awesome. About how the men are supposed to treat you as an object of value and an object of worth and something special. Amen? Ladies, about how a man is not supposed to treat a lady or his wife like another dude. But he's supposed to in tenderness and love that has nothing... The text in Ephesians 5 doesn't have anything to do with sex. It's total love and self-sacrifice for the woman. And then the Bible says that the woman is supposed to lovingly submit to that Christ-centered leadership and respect her husband. That means that she's supposed to do everything she can to help her husband know, I think that you are the man. And all the men said? Alright, and all the men who don't want to admit it, you said amen in your heart. It's awesome the Word of God tells us about how children are supposed to honor the parents and parents are not supposed to exasperate the children. 
I remember as a kid sometimes, you know, Sunday afternoons, my mom's trying to get a nap and we're in there tearing the house apart. She comes in, you know, half asleep with, you know, just like the patron saint of extension cord whippings. You know what I'm saying? Just coming in and swinging. The Bible says to honor your parents. Don't exasperate them and vice versa. The Bible's awesome. You find financial rules in the Bible. What do I do with my money? How do I invest it? Do I put my trust in money? Let me just say very quickly, money is a sad God. Money cannot bring happiness and money always brings disillusionment. You see awesome things about in the Bible, like how am I supposed to treat my enemies? Jesus says something crazy. He says that we're supposed to love our enemies. What? Honestly, isn't that a little bit weird? That's a crazy thing to say. But could it be that Jesus is pointing us to freedom is found when I am able, not that I have to, but I am able through the power of God to forgive those who have harmed me? Oh my goodness, the Bible is awesome. You see things in the Bible about laziness. Parents who have kids say amen, right? Even when Jamestown was founded, Miles Standish, the short red-headed soldier, after a while you had the English gentleman, right? And they didn't want to do what? They want to work. Because they were up here. He found something in the Bible that the Apostle Paul had said that's mind-blowing in its proportions. He who does not work shall not what? And guess what happened after those gentlemen began to be very hungry? They began to work. And then here we are, a little over 400 years later, in the state of Virginia. Had he not applied that biblical principle, it is virtually certain that Jamestown would have folded and the history of Virginia would have been totally different. But he found it in the Bible. You see things in the Bible about honesty. How do I be a good business person? The Bible says that God hates false weights. That means telling somebody you're getting five pounds of this when they're actually getting four and a half pounds of whatever. And by the way, that is not a drug reference at all. Got to clarify today. How's the church supposed to be run? You know, in Baptist life, we've gone absolutely nuts to where we have this idea that everybody who's a member gets to give their two cents. You know what happens when we do that? We end up with a bunch of change. Y'all like that one? Yeah. Not good change, bad change. Who cares? Hey, Brother Jeff, how dare you say, who you do not care about my opinion? Biblically, here's the way that the model is supposed to work. The people of the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to elect their leaders, pastor elders. And then those leaders, under the power of the Holy Spirit, lead the church. Because if you've got a church, however many people we have here this morning, let's say that we have a hundred. If you lead the church by everybody's opinion, how many heads do you have on that freak called the church? Can I get a witness? Here's what happens in Baptist life. We say that we believe the Bible, but when it comes to church polity and the way that we operate, we totally throw it out the water. Nowhere in Scripture do you see everything coming to a consistent congregational vote. And in Baptist life, we've got to just be honest. The other folks have a lot to make fun of us for. There are records of Baptist churches voting as a group on which type of toilet paper to buy. Seriously? Well, what kind of carpet? Who cares? 
Here's what we do. We vote upon this stuff that doesn't mean a hill of beans. But here's the question for the people who like to do that stuff. My question is, okay, how many people have you shared the gospel with in the last month? How many lost people do you regularly pray for to be saved? Which missionaries are you investing in? And if you can't follow the basics of the gospel... You need to simply do that first and then come to the church and tell the church how it should be run. Amen? It's a living reality. It will change your life. Some people say, well, Jeff, what about blind faith? Are we supposed to blindly believe in the Bible? No. It's a reasonable faith. I have a friend in Africa who was formerly a Muslim and he converted to being a follower of Jesus. And he said, growing up... um, the, the Muslim leaders always told him, well, you know, you, the highest thing for you to do is, is to be, become well, what we know as a suicide bomber. You know, my friend Ishmael said he would tell them when they say, you need to strap a bomb and you need to go, you know, kill infidels. Join the jihad. He'd say, you'll show me first. Did y'all get that? Show me. If it's so great, you do it. Let me give you a few facts. On your question, Jeff, how do I know the Bible is true? Because we've all seen the History Channel documentaries. And let me just put a little advertisement here. The History Channel is a great channel in regard to history. But when it comes to the Bible, the scholars that they interview are extreme fringe scholars. They're not the mainstream. They They do not represent the bulk of Bible teachers and people who know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. They represent a strand of people what we know as liberal theologians. Those are people who will say that the Bible contains the Word of God, but it also contains errors. There's an ancient Greek word for that, and it's called hogwash. Go look it up. Let me give you several facts about... I'm going to get in trouble, Brother Fred, before this day is over. Can you trust the Bible? In your outline, here is one reason. Overwhelming manuscript evidence. There are over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament ancient documents. People will say, now Jeff, isn't it like the telephone game? To where you begin to gossip and you begin to gossip and you say this and the further it goes down the line, the more jumbled it gets. What happened is people began to doubt, especially the Old Testament. Because the earliest copy we had was a thousand years old. And then people begin to say stuff like, you know, you can't trust it and it's not true and whatnot. And then in 1947, there was something discovered in Qumran called the Dead Sea, what? Scrolls. Y'all done your homework. That's good. And the Dead Sea Scrolls contain every book in the Old Testament, except for Esther. And these, 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 these scrolls were dated at around 100 years before Christ. They were a 1,000 years older than our earliest copies. So here's the question. Did anything change? They found that there was about a 5% or so variation in the spelling. Now here's what that would be like. Like I've got my friend Jeff Zimmerman here this morning. And Jeff's name is spelled G-E-O-F-F. My name is spelled J-E-F-F. Jeff McCarty's name is spelled Jeffrey, J-E-F-F, right? E-R-Y. Not it? Okay. And so there's different ways, like if you look at different Bible versions today. Isaiah is also called uh, Isaias. It's the same person. 
There was no changes in meaning. There was no changes in the text other than simply different ways to say the same word. And this is a thousand years to where the text remained pure. Frederick Kenyon, the great scholar, said the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true Word of God handed down with that essential loss from generations throughout the centuries. There's a group of men called the Masoretes. And every time they would write um, the Word of God, here's what they would do. And this was the Talmudist group when they would write the name of God in Hebrew. Not to begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, and should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. They would take a bath after writing every letter. And if there was found one mistake on any of the whole manuscript, did not matter if they worked for four weeks on it, it was burned so that the word of God would not be corrupted. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 160, Your word is true from the beginning, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Not only is there overwhelming manuscript evidence, but there's also archaeological verification. Archaeology has confirmed that the Bible is true. There's uh, the Hittites. Anybody remember those? Right? Girls? Those annoying guys in gym class who keep on hitting on you? Right? So you got the Hittites... And everybody said until, I'm glad some of y'all got that, until 1906, there had never been any record of the Hittites ever found outside the Bible. Guess what they found in 1906 in Turkey? Tons of Hittite records. Wow. Then Sodom and Gomorrah. Liberal theologians said, oh, that's not a real place. They found Sodom and Gomorrah. Dr. Bryant Wood, you can Google his name and find his research. They found that there was evidence of earthquake activity, bitumen, which is kind of like napalm, naturally. And then the sedimentary rock had been molded together by intense heat. The Bible said that that had happened before archaeology had ever caught up. Then Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho. Y'all remember that? And then we look on back here like, oh my gosh, we're teaching the kids this. You know, and everybody dies. Like, hopefully we explain it good because the kids are like, you know, massacre, massacre, massacre. We learned it at church. We've got to be careful, you know, by the way uh, that we teach that. But Jericho, um, there was no found record outside of the 1930s where they found Jericho and found, this is interesting, that it had been burned. God said to burn the city with fire. And there was also an earthquake. There's also a town named Gezer. That is not a nursing home, but it was excavated in 1969. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 16, the Bible says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He set it on fire, he killed its inhabitants, and then gave it to his wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Isn't that kind of weird? Right? Girls, you're going to get married, your dad's like, what am I going to give you? Let me slaughter a town and give it to you. Ha 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 ha. Terrible, right? But here's what's interesting. In 1969, they found Gezer and they begin to uncover it. And here's what mystified these archaeologists. They found Hebrew artifacts. They found Egyptian artifacts. And they found Canaanite artifacts in the same layer. Alright? Pharaoh killed everybody. That takes care of the Egyptian part. The Hebrews came and lived, Solomon's wife, and then the Canaanites were the ones who got killed. And they looked and they said, wow, the Bible talked about this before we ever knew archaeologically. 
Then in 1993, there was an inscription that had the name of King David. King David in the Bible, one of the most famous kings. You know, there was no known record of David outside of the Scriptures until 1993, but it tells all about David. You can go Google it. You can find the rock, and it's got the inscriptions all in there. There's also the Ebla tablets discovered in 1964. The University of Rome professor Paolo Mattei, I think that's how you say it, And on these records, you found biblical towns, biblical names, Hebrew words. Wow. Even Jesus spoke about how the Old Testament was written by whom the Old Testament claims to be written by. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words lest He rebuke you and be found a liar. Not only does the Bible have archaeological verification, but here's what it also has. It's got brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. You've got people like David. He's listed as a murderer. You've got people like Peter, one of the founders of the early church, you know, who promoted Christianity, and he actually denied Jesus. If you were a disciple and you were actually trying to edit the Bible, wouldn't you edit out that part to where you left Jesus? <laughs> Don't you think? But it's in there. The Bible contains brutal honesty, also consistency of its message. The Bible does not contradict itself. It's got the theme of grace through every single page. You also have external confirmation from prophecies. The Bible prophesied that Alexander the Great would conquer the known world as he did. The Bible prophesied in the book of Daniel that the Roman Empire would come and would crush every other kingdom. The Bible is absolutely and totally true. The Bible is also the most persecuted book in history. Here's some uh, printing numbers. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Where are my nerds? 17 million copies. Gone with the Wind. 33 million copies. I'm going to have to say this. Twilight, the saga. That was painful. 43 million copies. The Da Vinci Code, 57 million copies. Lord of the Rings, 103 million copies. Harry Potter, that disturbed English child, 400 million copies. The Bible, the study was done in 1992. So many Bibles are printed and given away. They're not sold, so there's no record. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 billion Bibles having been printed. It is the world's most persecuted book, yet it's the world's most published book. And people will say, now, uh, Jeff, what about Bible versions? Which Bible version do you use? Use as many as you can. Because language is not like math. We don't speak Greek or Hebrew. So get as many as you can and read the Word of God. The King James says, unless thou repent... Thou shalt perish. The New King James says, unless you repent, you will perish. And they say that you get the idea. The Word of God is true. Then uh, there's a great verse if you want to write this down in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 9. This is the Apostle Paul in prison. He says, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But, I love this, the Word of God is not chained. That means that no matter what you can do, you cannot chain the Bible. Remember reading about Voltaire in history class? The, the, the Frenchman who said that within a hundred years of his life, that the Bible would be an unknown book. 
little after a hundred years after Voltaire's death, the British government paid over $500,000 to the Tsar of Russia for the Bible manuscript Codex Sinaiticus, which was a priceless ancient 1600-year-old Bible manuscript. And guess how much the works of Voltaire were going for is just a few pennies on the streets of London. The Bible will stand. Amen? The Bible will stand against powerful people. You remember Herod? When Herod tried to kill baby Jesus, but instead he killed the whole area with all of males two years old and under. He did that. And yet, the Bible tells us of Herod's death, but today we worship Jesus. No matter who they are, how many degrees, how much money, how many guns, no one can stop the Word of God. Even powerful empires, the Roman Empire tried to smash Christianity, but yet Christianity lived. The Bible is the most transformational book in history. It has transformed nations. The Bible... Number two, under your main division, is not a private religion, but it's an act of faith. God will speak to you. If you read His Word, He will speak to you. I remember when my brother died, and I began to just read the Word of God. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, it concludes with, He's there on the top of this, this, this rampart, this fort, and he's looking out and he's seeing all this destruction, all this slaughter, and he's like, God, why don't you do something? You've gone through things in your life, and you say, God, why don't you stop this? Why don't you fix it now? And that's at the ending of verse 4, it says, But the just shall live by The just shall live by faith. I may not understand why the things happen, but God just, in that time of my life, He just impressed upon me and He just said, you know, Jeff, live by faith. I said, God, I don't understand how all this, but it was just like that, that, that voice from the scripture, live by faith. Take this step in faith. Take this step in faith. And God will never let us go. Amen, church? He'll speak to you through His word. Read it. It's awesome. I remember when I was trying to pray about whether to go pastor a church in South Georgia after I graduated college, and, and I was scared. I, I didn't want to, and I, I read a verse in, in, in Mark chapter 10, and it talked about he who leaves, and it, this whole list of things will gain a hundredfold more in my kingdom. And it's just like God said, you know what, Jeff? You need to be able, be willing to give up your plans for my plans. Some of you, that means simply to get saved today. Today. Some of you, your plans, you're like, well, I'm going to get baptized sometime. (laughs) But it's today. Step out and follow Christ. There are people today, though, some people in the church who will tell you now, Jeff, I know the Word of God has not changed. It's not changed. But here, don't be political. You know what people are saying when when they say something like that? They're literally saying that Jesus doesn't apply to all of your life. Remember the statement in the Bible that Jesus is Lord, right? That was a political statement. Guess what got the Christians killed? Jesus is Lord. Because when they're saying Jesus is Lord, who are they not saying is Lord? Caesar. And everybody had to say Caesar is Lord. Everybody. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you said Jesus is Lord, that was a political statement. We're not saying that Christians have to be libertarians or republicans or or, or the Constitution party or, or any political party. 
But the question is, is a follower of Christ truly radical? Yes. If you follow Christ, you will be different. Some people say, now, now, now just don't be, don't be, don't judge. Be tolerant. Well, well, if Jesus said that He's the way, the truth, and the life, we're not saying that people who follow Him are morally better, but if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then that means He is the way, the truth, and the life. Right, church? That's what Jesus said. Some people say, now don't be a fanatic. Here's how crazy that is. What they're saying is, you know, God has saved you from going to hell for all eternity, and He's given you peace here in this life. He's given you purpose. But don't let that really get you excited. You ever seen people at a football game? If we can get excited for a football game, we can get excited for Jesus. Number three, the Bible is not a boring list of rules, but it's a deadly weapon against sin. The Bible pierces into our lives. What does it pierce into? It pierces into a lost or a disobedient heart. Charles Spurgeon said we must thrust the sword of the Spirit into the hearts of men. Some of you, you are dealing with guilt. You know that you need to be saved. But here's what you tell God. You say, God, what I've got to do is get better. It never works that way. We come to God and He makes us holy. It'll pierce into a deadened spirit and a hardened heart. The Word of God, when you hear it, it pierces. And you see Jesus as being Lord and desiring to follow Him. And then then finally, here very quickly, it, it exposes stupid and foolish thought processes. Things like, well, I need to get saved when the time is right. Do any of you know when you're going to die? If the Bible is true and it says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment, then why would you put off your eternal salvation? Does that make sense to anybody? You know what I did for years? I put it off. That was insane. But here's why. I was blind. Today we're praying that God would open your eyes. Simply just say, you know what, God, I'm giving my total self to you. You see, here's what happens. If we see our sin is more desirable than Christ, we'll say, well, I'll serve Christ one day, but right now I want to hold on to my sin. Our sin is terrible. We shouldn't want it. If we could have our eyes changed, we would see us grabbing the porcupine of sin. It pierces us through with things that will destroy our lives. When we see Jesus, we see the Lord over death, the One who can change us, the One who will actually forgive us and not hold it over our heads. Um, I don't know if any of y'all are afraid of snakes. Any, any snake phobia? Alright. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is when in Acts chapter 28, when the snake bit the Apostle Paul, when he, when he grabbed the... the, the pile of firewood and, and the snake came out and said it fastened itself on his hand and then saw it, the Apostle Paul he went over to the fire and he shook off the snake in the fire and I was like that's awesome that means that there's biblically uh, no wrong way to kill a snake yeah you know kill them all and let God sort them out I hate snakes knew a lady in Georgia and it, it was so amazing she had such a fear of snakes and she worked with the youth group a lot and what would happen sometimes she would get out of her car and some of the mean boys from the youth group would say are you ready one, two, three. And they would yell, snake! And she at one time she had a camera. She went, whoa! That camera went 20 feet in the air. She hated snakes. So let's go, let's go for a minute and imagine if we could be, if Steve Irwin was still alive or, or some of those crazy guys who play with things that will kill you. And we're there with a deadly snake. 
and something happens and this snake bites you. Let's say it's a deadly puff adder. You've got literally minutes upon your life. You drop to your knees and you fall on your back. You say, I've just been bitten by a puff adder. I am going to die. And then your friend pulls out a dose of anti-venom specifically for that snake and says, here, let me give it to you quickly. And you say, I think I'm just going to walk this one off. Just give me five. Let me, let me shake it off. Everybody's going to be thinking, I don't know what you're smoking, but whatever it is, it's bad. You can't walk off a bite from a puff adder and there's no amount of walking off by doing good things that will offset the venom of sin that is running through all of our veins. Some of you, this has been somewhat of a mystery here. You've got this gun case with a Bible and a sword. What in the world does that mean? Often people will say things like this. Now, Jeff, I, I know that you know, there on number two, finally it says to expose the real sin issues of my heart. And then finally that I should embrace the Savior who already knows that I am what I am. But what I want to do, Jeff, I want to kind of buy me a big black Bible like you have. And I, I want to kind of carry that with me. I'm going to sleep with that Bible. I'm going to put one in my car. I think I'm even going to see if I can you know, put a hymnal in my back pocket. I'm going to maybe get uh, Jesus name tattooed on me and by that I think that I'll be able to work towards getting saved. If this one is ancient times and someone broke into your house and you had your sword inside a case or we can put that in modern terminology someone breaks into your home then trying to harm your family. You say, hey, I got my gun in my, my safe. Got a key for it. Somewhere. I think, raw. It's not going to work. Here's what the Bible is referring to when it says that the Bible discerns, it cuts to even the intents of the heart. Instead of saying, you know what, I own a Bible. I believe that the Bible is good. Amen, preacher. Some of y'all give like the Baptist head nod. I don't know what he just said. That was weird, but I'm nodding my head. So maybe you won't do it again. I hope he gets riddling, right? Stuff like that. Please hear me. Biblical faith is when we come and we, we unlock by faith. By faith. Faith is total trust in who God is. We unlock the door to His promise and then it's then that the power of the Word of God is made available. And if this was ancient time, then to protect your families, you would need your sword. But simply believing that your sword is strong and believing that it's sharp will do you no good. You must put faith in the actual sword, the double-bladed sword that pierces the Word of God, the Gospel. Number one, you must be pierced with it yourself to the point that God kills your sin. And then from that, He makes you into a new person. And when He raises you up, He doesn't have the Bible over here in some area of your life. He comes and He gives you everything that He is. He gives you salvation. 
He gives you righteousness. He gives you the power of His Word. He gives you the shield of faith. He gives you the Gospel of peace. And instead of the Bible being over in some place of your life that you may visit once every few weeks, when you get saved, God places His Word in your hand and in your life. And that's what God is calling you to do today.